Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Elisma Lambert, who's both a qualified naturopath and homeopath with close to 15 years experience, who runs a busy practice and is involved in practitioner education. She always takes a generalist approach in the way she teaches and treats her clients, as she believes that there are too many specialists and not enough practitioners who see the big picture. Applying her knowledge on cellular biochemistry and genetics enables Elisma to navigate treatments for many different diseases and disorders. She's becoming well known for her ability to connect the dots between root cause, symptoms and genetics and helping people to reach a better understanding of their health conditions. She travels regularly to Europe and the US to learn the latest techniques and connect with well-known and respected practitioners, but her clients are her true teachers. You can learn more about Elisma at mthfrandbeyond.com.au. Welcome to FX Medicine, Elisma. How are you? Very good, thank you, Andrew. Now, we're going to be talking about a very controversial subject and one which needs more attention in our community. That's the genetic predilection of, to addiction. So I guess we need to start off with what are we really talking about with regards to the genetic predilection? Okay, well, if you look at the, um, if you look at the, the definition of addiction, it's, being, uh, it's a compulsive engagement in a behavior that is naturally rewarding despite the adverse or the negative consequences that follows it. Um, but there's a lot of research that was done by uh, Dr. Kenneth Blum, uh, who, um, who is um, doing a lot of research in neurogenetics and neurogenomics. Um, and the, based on the research that he has done, the definition of addictions have somewhat changed, mm. um, highlighting that addiction is more of a chronic brain disorder and not simply a behavioral problem um, of too much indulgence. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that addiction is not a psychological disorder, but more of a physiological disorder. And this is because there's a lot of uh, neurobiochemistry that gets disrupted with addictions. Um, And they are also now finding a lot of genetic components that can make a lot of people more prone to addictions um, or put them at higher risk of developing uh, addictive behaviors later on in life. And one of the major genes involved here is the DRD2A1 gene. Is this the reward-seeking? Yeah, that's correct. That's gotcha. the, uh, the gene involved in the re- reward deficiency uh, syndrome, or RDS, as it's sometimes called. So that one has probably received the most attention. Um, there's a lot of other genes that are being explored as well. Um, the, the dopamine transporter, DAT1, is another gene that plays a huge role here. Um, and my understanding is that um, uh, Dr. Blum is working on a, a panel of about 10 um, genes or 10 polymorphisms to sort of create like a, 
uh, a risk factor score for people who may be at um, high risk for developing addiction so that these people can be screened early on. Uh, and it may sort of like change the treatment of uh, a lot of these people by looking at uh, genetic variants. But with regards to that gene, mm-hmm. surely there's environmental factors that, that cement the behaviour. Is that right? Absolutely. Right. The, the gene pretty much um, gives you about a 74.4% increased risk of developing uh, addictions. But the environmental or epigenetic factors um, has a role of, you know, I don't really know how to find these percentages, but according to the research, uh, it can reduce the risk of that gene expressing by 30 to 50%. So your genes is not your destiny. Um, there's absolutely a lot of um, environmental factors that can determine whether you are going to express um, those genes or not. I guess the, um, the problem in all of this is you don't necessarily have to be ever exposed to alcohol or drugs to develop an addiction because an addiction can come from just um, from ordinary diet, you know, just from the sugar in our diet or from you can That's become right. addicted to exercise. So there's a lot of other things that you can become addicted to. Uh, that doesn't necessarily get recognized as a problem because it's not a drug or an alcohol. And, you know, no one ever really sees it as a problem. And it may not necessarily be a problem, but you can still have those addictive traits when you have uh, uh, these genetic uh, risk factors, but it may not necessarily translate to an alcohol or a drug addiction. You know, that's a really interesting comment you make because a very wise practitioner who was a colleague many years ago, uh, we were talking about... I think it was prisoners, um, criminals who had, you know, found religion in in prison. This wise practitioner said they're just swapping one addiction for another and they become so fixated then on the religion as their outlet, if you like, of of their addictive behaviour. Yeah, that's absolutely true, yeah, because it, it all follows the same. Um, it, it's still a dis- dysregulation in the dopaminergic reward system. So you... There's, there's many, many substances and many behaviors that can feed into the system. And so if you take one away, then people are inclined to just substitute with another one. You know, it's the same with smoking. How many smokers start to overeat? How many alcoholics start to overeat when they start giving up um, alcohol? So you are just really swapping one for another. And it's interesting that she was mentioning about the prison system because um, if you look at the DAT1 or the dopamine transporter, um, if that one comes into play with a DRD2 uh, and it really amplifies addictive behavior, that one specifically is very much uh, associated with violent behavior as well. So it would be interesting if you ever could do the genetics of um, a lot of prisoners, you know, who are in there for uh, violent uh, alcoholic outbursts or yeah. crimes that involve drugs. It would be really interesting to see what their genetics, you know, look like. Because if you just have the DRD2 gene, you may not necessarily have those violent tendencies. It's just an addiction. Yeah. But um, I thought it was quite interesting. And, and th- this is the thing that, that gets me about how medicine is sort of, I, I get the caution of medicine with regards to genetics, but I don't get the dismissal by some quarters of the medical profession of of genetics, of, of SNPs and things like that, because Boy, I, I just see in in times to come that this is going to give a roadmap of risk. And we, we, we're quite happy to look at risk factors for Alzheimer's. We're quite happy to look at risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Why are we not? 
why are we dismissing still or, or you know, there's, there's real reticence to accept that our genes are with us. You know, they're here. They're not like something that you might run into. You have them. And I get that they're not a, you know, a given that you're going to get a disease in the future, but boy, it gives you a roadmap of risk. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, if, if, if you just look at the risk factor of the DRD2, I mean, that's a, that's a case in point. There yeah. was just such a huge, huge, huge correlation. And, you know, one of the most interesting things is that they actually found that in, in families where this reward deficiency syndrome is really strongly expressed, they found that um, the, uh, the, the man and a woman in, the, in a married relationship they both had the genes. So there seems to be this attraction between uh, people with addictions, which I thought was fascinating. It's, it's, it's literally like the DRD2 genes call to each other. So they found this really high correlation with, um, with yeah, men and women with DRD2 genes getting married. Um, and this is, this is not just in families with really, really strong expression. I'm not suggesting that everyone mm. um, with addictions uh, do that. But there is a strong predilection, and if we ignore genetics, uh, I mean, this is, in my opinion, one of the reasons why so many of the drug treatments fail, because the relapse rate is just enormous. Um, and I think this is because we are ignoring, um, you know, recept uh, dopamine receptor expression and a lot of the genes involved in that. Um, and if we can screen people, and I think we need to also be very careful with that, because there's a lot of fear of being boxed into, uh, you know, an area or having their insurance denied because they've got some kind of uh, genetic predisposition. So I think there's still a lot of things that needs to be sorted out there. But if we could use it for good and we could use it to screen people and in so change our lifestyles and our behaviors and be aware of where we need to be careful of, um, then it could just prevent so much uh, problems down the line, you know? Something that you said earlier, I'm, I'm just checking myself on, and that's with regards to this, an addiction to exercise or an addiction to religion. You said something about that you keep doing it despite having negative consequences. So therefore, we know that um, excessive intake of sugar leads to metabolic disease, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke. We know that smoking tobacco, drinking alcohol, taking illicit drugs, certain illicit drugs have adverse effects on not just self, but family, community. We get that. But what about exercise? Well, um, you know, as someone who used to be addicted to exercise myself, I can say that, um, it's just, everything is, is good in moderation, but even something as good as exercise can have negative consequences because what can happen is your body doesn't get the recovery time that it needs. So you can ignore all of those signals that your body is telling you that you need to take it slow, that you need to maybe change your exercise, uh, have more recovery days. You ignore those things and you push through and you sort of develop injuries, um, chronic muscle breakdown, chronic tissue breakdown, uh, you know, end up with injuries. Uh, then you can't exercise, so then you plunge into a huge depression because now you're not getting your dopamine high, you know, and that can put you at risk of then grabbing onto other things to get that dopamine high. So this is sort of like the the, the spiral that you can, that a lot of uh, elite athletes. I mean, we've we've seen it with uh, Grant Hackett. You know, a lot of these elite athletes can run into this problem when they can't exercise anymore because they their bodies have just broken down. They will 
grab onto something else to get that same kind of, of feeling. So, yeah, even exercise in excess um, can have negative consequences. You spoke about a personal journey with an exercise addiction. How would a practitioner, if you went to see them, tease an addiction to exercise apart from an eating disorder? Yes. Well, you know, um, for me, if I would usually have a, a huge questionnaire and based on the questionnaire, you know, I can figure out what's going on um, in their biochemistry to a large degree. I guess I guess this is where you have to ask them other questions. You know, you have to, when it, when it becomes, when exercise becomes disruptive to the social interaction with other people, when it becomes an obsession, um, when, you know, I can remember at times when, you know, it was Christmas Day, the gyms would be closed on Christmas Day, and I would be like, well, what do you mean the gym is closed on Christmas Day, you know? So it's that really absurd kind of, uh, addiction, everything just revolves around that. It's like, like an OCD be, thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's an OCD. Yeah, everything revolves around that. If they can't exercise that day, they are miserable. And so that's when things become really pathological. But this is where careful questioning from the practitioner's side, uh, you know, needs to be engaged in. You know, um, you can often also just look at the person and see, you know, are their body, is their body being, you know, breaking down in like a catabolic state? Uh, are they obviously taking things too far? Um, you know, is, is that all they can talk about? So I guess when everything becomes fixated around something, then that is an addiction. Yeah. Um, but that will require, yeah, careful observation and careful questioning um, of the practitioner and, and reading between the lines. See if they may have had uh, past addictions. You know, maybe maybe they used to be obese and now they are gym junkies. So they've they've substituted carbs and sugar for exercise. You know, it's, it's looking for patterns. In their, in their lifestyle. When do you see this sort of patient in your practice? Do you see them at the in beginning my, or, or when everything else has failed? Well, I see them generally when, when everything else has failed um, because, you know, a lot of people would have tried hypnotherapy. Um, a lot of them would, just, would have just tried, you know, going cold turkey, um, whether it's to do with, with food addictions um, or um, nicotine addictions or alcohol addictions or drug addictions. Um, and so it's usually when they've realized their willpower is just not not winning out on this on mm. this battle for mm. them. And when all other therapies have failed, um, that's when we start looking at biochemical reasons because I feel that that is often being missed because we see addictions largely still as a psychological disorder. So we, we'll put people in therapy or... Um, you know, uh, put them on programs, we are often still missing the biochemical aspects here, which has got more to do with neurotransmitter dysregulation and receptor resistance. So that's usually, I would see them at those later stages when everything else has failed. You know, I'm still wondering in my mind about, it was a slideshow that I saw and I'll, I'll put this up on the FX Medicine website for our listeners. And that's, uh, it was by John Saunders at Sydney Uni, um, uh, Southwest or South Pacific private, and it was titled Understanding Addictions, Perspectives from DSM-5 and ICD-11. It was a presentation that he gave. And gee, there was some good information on there. One of the interesting things that I remember reading was about the, how the reward system became underactive because it's been hijacked by the addictive process. Then the excitatory system is hyperactivated in response to whatever substance you're addicted to. Can you measure this? Um, and if so, how do you measure 
or um, to decide that it is actually addiction, an addictive process going on. That's a really, really good point. I would love to see this, um, this uh, slide, the slides that you're talking about, um, Andrew. That sounds really interesting. He's, co- he's certainly correct. Like what happens is you have this underactive dopaminergic system, mm. um, and so um, you're, you're trying to drive up um, the dopamine yeah. to get the high. But the problem is, is when this happens in a in a in a chronic um, situation, especially if the receptors, the dopamine receptors, are downregulated. It's the same as insulin resistance. You have to produce more and more and more dopamine to get the high. Now, because you're producing so much dopamine, you are now shifting the bar, so to speak, because we all will have a level, let's say if we take the normal level of dopamine, once we get there, we feel great. Everything is fantastic. Now, if you keep on having to produce more dopamine because the receptors are not uh, sensitive enough, um, then you're going to raise that bar. So now a normal level of dopamine is not enough for you anymore. You always have to go for that higher level. Mm. And so that's why even at normal dopamine levels, the body will still be in a low dopaminergic state for that person because the messages are just not getting through. Um, Now, how you measure that, that's a very interesting idea. And I guess at this point in time, the best way that we can measure it is by doing something like, let's say, a urinary neurotransmitter test, right. which is the best thing that we've got to measure neurotransmitters because we can't measure C, um, um, CSF neurotransmitters. So yeah. you can do like a urinary neurotransmitter test. And then you could possibly do something like um, um, like an organic acid test, for instance, which is another urine test. Uh, and that way you can measure the actual dopamine in the system and then you can measure the dopamine breakdown products in the system. And I guess from that you can sort of start putting some of the puzzle pieces together and like how much dopamine is being produced, how much dopamine is being broken down. Because if you have to produce a ton of dopamine to get a message through uh, and the body's not really using that dopamine, so it has to do something with it, it'll tend to... It'll have to put it through the COMT enzyme to break it down and through MAO to break it down. So you can look at those byproducts and you can look at the dopamine production and possibly that can give you a lot of clues of what may be going on in this person's system. The trick in your life is that it will change depending on the stage they are in. You know, in the beginning, the dopamine levels may be actually quite high, whereas sort of towards the chronic stages of addiction, you know, after years and years and years, it may be really low because it's like it's depleted. Yeah. You know, there's not that much left anymore. So you have to take everything into context. It's not a, it's not a set um, standard, you know, uh, markers or levels that you could look at. You have to put into context with how long has this been going on, um, and uh, you know what there may be other genetic variabilities apart from the DRD2 like COMT and MAO gene mutations as well. But those can sort of start to form a picture in your mind about what could be going on with this person. But then you can also check, you know, there's also a role with dopamine and insulin and dopamine and thyroid hormones. So I think it's getting a really complete picture that's going to give you uh, the better answers at the end of the day. So a lot of investigative work. With regarding dopamine, and you spoke about the acute versus the chronic phase, in my head, I'm just wondering if there might be um, some link or or hint with regards to, let's say, particularly females in the beginning stage that they tend to not suffer from um, cyclical nostalgia with regards to their their periods because they've got a lot of dopamine, which is 
as we know, prolactin-inhibiting hormone, that's the other name for dopamine, versus the chronic stage where they end up with worse breast pain because their dopamine's depleted. So therefore, they've got nothing to antagonize that prolactin. Do you ever see that? Yeah, absolutely. That, that can absolutely happen. You know, you know um, I think low dopamine is a, is a bigger issue in women than what we recognize. I mean, it's, dopamine will, first of all, it will naturally tend to drop off after menopause as estrogen levels drop off anyway. So that seems to be uh, a thing that happens and why a lot of women, when they go into menopause, become more depressed. Um, etc. But when they are not going to menopause, when they still have some active hormone production, um, and that dopamine gets depleted because of um, just stressors really pushing that system, um, then yeah, absolutely, you can start seeing seeing that change happen. And I have seen that where women's PMS symptoms change. They'll say, you know, I used to have lots of breast tenderness, but now that doesn't seem to be an issue anymore. My, my issue now is that I have no libido, and that low libido would be more associated with the depleted dopamine. So, yeah, yeah there's, there's this huge interplay between the neurotransmitters and the hormones, and they don't, they don't occur in isolation, and they don't work in isolation. So, yes, you can see this changing pattern. Another idea that's coming to mind is from a very kind practitioner who, who showed me her biofeedback machine, um, and I'm just wondering about if you could use something like that to assess whether somebody is in this hyperactive state. And I guess I should explain this. It was a visual computer-generated image where you had a peaceful scene. And depending on if your sympathetic nervous system was activated, was depending on what would happen in that scene that was projected on the computer. And it was very weird. For, I remember being so sceptical at the beginning and then I changed it and I was like, this is really quite strange. It was really fun to do. <laughs> and I, I thought, what a great way to initiate this feedback where the patient can really, um, you know, not just control, but measure what they're, how they're how they're affecting change in their nervous system. I think I saw it many, many years ago when they were measuring uh, beta waves and alpha waves yeah. and things like that for that the was brain. It. And yeah, uh, so I didn't see it with the pictures, but that's really, really cool if they if they sort of like change the program to do that. And absolutely, because the dop dopaminergic system becomes overactivated when the body's more in a sympathetic state. So, um, you know, the reason why um, it, it, it becomes overactivated is because you're losing a lot of those inhibitory neurotransmitters like GABA and serotonin because of, you know, depletion along the line or for various other reasons. So if you can control your parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system and control your stress level, so to speak, you can absolutely start to affect these neurotransmitters and hormones. Um, and that's through, you know, behavioral therapy. Um, ultimately, I think that is uh, an amazing, amazingly good tool and probably more of a permanent kind of resolution to to fix a lot of these issues because you're changing behavior or you're teaching yourself to behave differently in certain situations because I think that's one of the the big things we have is stressful society and you get into these patterns and you just can't get out of a pattern and so we become essentially addicted to stress in a large uh, yes. in a large way yes so we, we have this constant dopamine high so even you know you 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 a high executive who comes back from work you know he can't sit and relax because he needs that dopamine rush, so he'll have alcohol or something like that. So he's always trying to keep that overexcitation happening. 
um, which works for a certain period of time, but then everything else gets depleted. So if you can modulate behavior like that, you know, that's a very, very powerful tool. Now, that's an interesting thing you said, addicted to stress. I think our 21st century lifestyle, it's like welcome to it. But okay, so let's talk about being addicted to stress that, you know, I function under pressure, quote, which obviously is deleterious when it's chronic. We're going to run ourselves into the ground. That's what we call overstressed. How, therefore, when one is in that pit, when one is right there at the point of the craving, and whether this be food, alcohol, um, illicit drugs, um, sugar, whatever that be, how can you change or how can you make patients aware that it's happening right now and you need to activate something rather than just going, oh, I'll just do it again? You know, I guess from a from a monitoring perspective, because people, you know, when they are in the state, they don't they don't realize that's the way that they are behaving. You know, you don't you don't recognize these patterns when you're in that state. You just want the fix. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you if you if you wanted to monitor it, you know, and there's um, I'm not a very um, savvy on these things, but you can get heart rate variability monitors. There's so many apps and gadgets and things out there. Right. Some of them really really easy, you know, like clips on the ear or clips on the finger that can monitor sympathetic and parasympathetic response. Ah, yes. And I've had quite a few clients who use that, and that it has changed their behaviour because they are you know stress addicts. They are, you know, they never sleep. They just work, 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 and they train, 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 train. And then when they start using these devices, it's like, you know, the thing, let's say, beeps or whatever, but it alerts you when you are, when you need rest. And they start to like, oh, okay, I need to slow down. And I have found that uh, remarkably a lot of them have just calmed down so much. They've changed their behavior because they get alerted to it in real time. Um, so, you know, th- that way it's not like you have to go to the practitioner to get, let's say, a test done. It's just a manner of, manner of um, keeping monitoring yourself during the day and then getting these um, alerts when you are going into that state. That would be a good way to sort of monitor it. But then there's also, you know, if you wanted to sort of treat it from a biochemical perspective, there's a lot of nutrients and herbs and things you can use as well to help and modulate this dopaminergic uh, function mm. um, and correct things over time too. Just before we move on to nutrients and herbs, which I, I think obviously is what we need in practice, but you said something there regarding a, a clip for the year, and I've spoken to Emrys Goldsworthy about vagal nerve stimulation with the, mm. the forgive me if I get this wrong, Emrys, it's a clip that goes on the internal conquer of the ear. So it's not just a treatment, but a monitor. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, there's a, there's a, there's a monitor. It, That's it has, cool. Um, yeah, it takes data, it draws you little graphs, you can sort of track, you can exactly see when your stressful periods are and when you're relaxed, so you can track your, you know, your sleeping patterns, your exercise patterns. And this is, you know, people who love data collection, they'll love this kind of stuff because they can really, uh, you know, even if food, for instance, there's a lot of food that can trigger um, an adrenaline response as well. Food um, allergies or food intolerances will trigger this excitation response so you can even sometimes times it to meals 
uh, and then say, well, what am I eating in that meal that is driving my sympathetic nervous system? So there's a, a lot of really cool information that you can get from these um, these kinds of devices. So with regards to nutrients and herbs, and, uh, you know, I've got a couple of ones that are just dear to my heart. The first one is the, you know, if you like, the poster child of relaxation, the, the mineral, and that would be magnesium. And the herb, of course, would for anxiety would be kava. How often do you use these and do you check the patient and align the choice of therapy with the patient? Or do you tend to sort of say, yep, these works, these work for most patients, so I use them all the time? I have my favourites. I'll be honest. I think we all, we all have those traps where we have our favourite things that we always go to first. Yeah. Um, I certainly do, you know, carbon, magnesium, great, because they, especially carbon works on the, you know, gabinergic system, which quietens down that dopamine, that stress response. Um, so, you know, I, I like to use um, GABA quite a bit, um, which could work similarly to, to kava. Um, there's other herbs. If you want to um, tone more on the dopaminergic system, you can use herbs like uh, rhodiola, which is, um, you know, a really a very prominent dopamine herb because right. it enhances the release of dopamine in the synapse that can then combine with a post-dopamine D2 receptor. Uh, and to a large degree, it also inhibits the MIOA um, enzyme activity, which then can allow for more residual dopamine to be transferred to the vesicles of presynaptic neurons for higher dopamine release. So that can sometimes quieten down a lot of cravings. So, uh, you know, it gives them that dopamine um, fix, and then they don't need to do anything else to get their dopamine levels up. So that's, a you know, really another nice herb to use. And then, you know, you've got your N-acetylcysteine, which is another one that can also drive the glutaminergic system uh, to release dopamine at the nucleus accumbens, which is where the reward side of the brain is situated. Ah. Um, so I will, I will, yeah, I'll, I'll adapt therapies depending on some of the other symptom pictures as well. So I can find things that will sort of cover a wide range of things. Yeah. Um, so there's quite a few amino acids and, and herbs that you can play around with. Uh, when it comes to the dopaminergic system. Uh, now, I've read a lot, you know, there's a bit of controversy whether GABA actually crosses the blood-brain barrier when you give it orally. However, mm. there's other work that shows that, okay, that might, be the, that might be the case, but let's talk about the gut-brain axis. How do you think it's working? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like from my research, um, it won't cross the blood-brain barrier in its intact state unless the blood-brain barrier has been damaged or compromised in some oh, way. Course, yeah. So sometimes if uh, someone gets a re really good result from oral GABA, it could be another maybe telltale sign that they may have a mm. compromised blood-brain barrier. But you are correct. Like I think a lot of the GABAergic activity can come from the gut itself um, because there are GABA receptors in the gut. So that may be why a lot of these powders and capsules work. Um, you can use um, other forms of GABA that are supposedly crossing the blood-brain barrier as well. I don't think they're really available here in Australia, but there's uh, your phenotropic GABA, I think, is one that crosses the blood-brain barrier. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, you don't always have to get things into the brain. It's exactly like you said. There's this connection between the brain and the gut. So you can work on GABA from a gut perspective, but you can also work on it from a hormonal perspective mm. because there's a huge relationship between progesterone and GABA as well. So, um, you know, you lift the progesterone up in those who are low in progesterone, and that could also have a GABAergic effect. So that's why you have to look at the whole person and decide, well, should I be treating this from a hormonal perspective or a gut perspective? 
or you know whichever perspective, and they'll and they'll have flow on effects towards each other anyway, and benefit other areas too. What about things like, for instance, some um, you know pregabalin, um, gabapentin, fraught with side effects. Not just that, but also titration issues. You've got to find the personalised dose. With regards to oral GABA, do you find that you've really got to play around with the dose that suits the patient or do you have a standard dose that tends to work for most people? Um, the types of GABA, yeah, I usually find that most people will respond to, you know, maybe 200 milligrams of GABA if you're talking about uh, the capsules. Um there are those occasions, especially when people are uh, having addicted to benzodiazepines or are using benzodiazepines, you know, th- those receptors are so uh, desensitized that you will need really large amounts of GABA in right. those people to work. So, yeah, you sometimes have to adjust the dose, but it's always good to start low and then just work your way up and see how they go with it. Um, when you use, um, you know, more absorbable forms like liposomal forms, then you can get away with a lot less. Yeah. So it'll depend on the delivery mechanism on, I guess, how much you would want to use. But I don't necessarily believe in more is better. You know, it's always about the the minimum dose that gives you the maximum um, benefit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the way that I like to work. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> I'm glad you say that because I really think it becomes this bang for buck uh, question. Yeah. You know, you've really got to think, well, how much am I getting here and how much is it costing the patient? Absolutely. And like I said, you know, if you just have to give them GABA, GABA, GABA or dopamine all the time, then you you need to look at it from a different perspective. You need to think, well, maybe the receptors are not working. So am I doing a service to this person just pushing more um, substrate in and it's not actually binding to the receptors? You know, it's the same as insulin resistance. If someone's insulin resistant, do you just want to give them more insulin or do you want to fix the insulin resistance? It's the same with dopamine and all of these other neurotransmitters. You want to fix the resistance if they are not responding appropriately. So it's not always about just driving more serotonin, dopamine or GABA into the body. You know, I've long had a concern with bioidentical progesterone in that it is a Band-Aid. It's okay to use a Band-Aid if you've got a cut that's bleeding. You know, it's it's a short-term fix, but it's not going to really stop the issue. What do you advocate with regards to the hormonal treatment of, uh, you know, dopaminergic or, or addiction issues? Well, the short term would be to work on the, the neurotransmitters themselves. So whether I'm using rhodiola or GABA or what have you, is trying to get that neurological effect quickly in so they can start to feel a little bit better. But you are absolutely right. This should still not just be the focus because a lot of this is driven by inflammation. Um, so, you know, you get... Um, you know, increased cytokines and chemokines. It creates this inflammation in the brain, which then overactivates this dopamine system. And you've got to be really careful with things like progesterone as well, Andrew, because if you give someone progesterone that has a lot of inflammation, oxidative stress, and gut dysbiosis going on, then progesterone can actually become pro-inflammatory. So it's not always, right. uh, you know, um, a great way to go, even if they may need it. So I would start looking for where's the inflammatory source coming from. You know, it, do they have gut dysbiosis? And I mean, so many people have gut dysbiosis. Do they maybe have viral infections or other infections or toxin overload? Um, or are they overtraining that may also be creating, you know, too much stress? Or say, 
if they diet bad, because even inflammation can come from a bad diet, too much sugars, and, and that's where it becomes tricky because a lot of that is driven by the addictive behavior. So sometimes it's about making dietary changes. Sometimes it's um, about treating gut dysbiosis or infections. Um, and I would really treat the root cause separately depending on what is it for that person. Yeah. But that is exactly what you should be doing is looking for the root cause, just trying to patch it up with neurotransmitters and hormones is also not the long-term solution. Of course, you mentioned the granddaddy of, of treatment <laughs> paradigms, I think, and that's inflammation. And it just comes yes. up time and time again. As an intervention, do you tend to use these relaxing herbs, magnesium, maybe a little bit of zinc to, to look at the underlying, um, let's say, a more gentle, conceptual sort of way of reducing inflammation? Or you do you tend to use anti-inflammatories like curcumin is the poster child, but you've also got other things like Boswellian and things like that. I do I do use turmeric, um, probably not as much as, as, as other practitioners. Um, I guess I like to use the minerals as well, such as magnesium and, and, and things like that to sort of quieten down those NMDA receptors. Um, so I like to sort of focus on the brain inflammation from that perspective. But probably one of the, um, you know, I, I would absolutely look at the dietary aspect and I know that diet can sometimes be really hard for people but just putting them on a Mediterranean style diet mm -hmm. and start reducing their sugars and starting reducing that inflammation because I find even by doing things like turmeric you know it has very limited effect if there's still something majorly um, in their lifestyle that is driving that inflammation so I may do like bits of, of everything uh, I'll add in some minerals I'll add in um, um, I'll add in things like the turmeric um, or boswellia or herbs like that, and then absolutely make sure that there isn't anything in their diet that, that may be really affecting them. And I'm not necessarily saying an extreme diet, but if there's something that really just stands out as like this is really not good, mm. then we need to work on that. And let's say it's alcohol. Let's say they're drinking alcohol because, and that's causing a lot of inflammation. Then I may sort of say, well, let's do the, let's do the GABA to try and reduce those alcohol cravings so that we are not – producing all of this inflammation. So it's just working it backwards and seeing what is the biggest trigger of their inflammation and, and seeing how best we can um, remedy that um, until we can dig deeper and deeper and get um, other things fixed along the way as well. What about co-treating within the medical paradigm? Well, yeah. I mean, you would absolutely never want to take anyone off any medications that uh, was prescribed to them. And there's um. You know, there's a lot of different ways that the medical paradigm works, as, as flawed as it is, in my opinion. Um, you know, there's a lot of drugs that can be used, and we can use a lot of our nutraceuticals along with these uh, treatments without um, without any effects. I mean, if you look at what is the, the, the triggers for relapse, um, it's things like stress and depression, anger, anxiety, and cravings. And we can work on all of those levels from a nutritional perspective. Now, you can use chromium for cravings. You can use things like GABA or kava for anxiety. You can work very well along these um, lines of uh, addic addiction drugs or drugs used in addiction without compromising the effectiveness of the drugs, but maybe reducing the relapse or the risk of relapse when they are on these drugs. Uh, I mean, the problem with the drugs, a lot of the drugs like the benzodiazepines that's used uh, in alcohol addiction is that they can become addictive themselves. Mm. So there's a, which is why it's not, in my opinion, a very good long-term solution apart from the fact that the relapse rates are so high. So I think using nutraceuticals in conjunction, it's a fantastic way to reduce that risk of relapse um, and um, 
you know, so that they can eventually come off the drugs and then maybe continue with some of the um, treatment strategies and um, keep themselves um, free of these addictions for uh, hopefully as long as they live. Where can practitioners find out more? What, what in your opinion, are the best sort of resources to go to? Well, um, there's, there's a, you know, um, I really love the research that was, um, that's done by Dr. Uh, Kenneth Blum. So he's done some remarkable research. And like I said, they, they're still in the process of doing research. And um, they've got this substance. Um, he developed a substance called KB220, which is also known as uh, synaptogenics or synaptamine, that they are trialing in a lot of uh, rehab clinics. Um, and, the you know, when I was looking at the results and the, that they were getting with it in terms of cocaine addiction, heroin addiction, alcohol addiction, and how much it reduced relapse, it was just phenomenal. It was, wow. you almost looked at it and you thought this cannot be true, that something can be this effective. Yeah. Um, and these are all done through, through uh, nutritional, you know, interventions. So um, if you Google, um, I don't have a website, but if you Google um, him and his work, if there's a lot of research papers on that, uh, fascinating research on the whole dopaminergic system. So that's probably one of the, the big sources that I would go to for information. Brilliant. So we'll put that up on the FX Medicine website for our listeners. So go to their uh, fxmedicine.com.au, uh, log in if you need to, and um, you can find out more and, uh, about all of the podcasts, but um, uh, certainly about this one. Elisma, thank you so much for taking us through that. That was really enlightening. I actually really admire the way that you say, I'm not a specialist, I'm a generalist, and there's a reason <laughs> for it, you know. Um, but I, I do like the way that you connect the dots. You, you, you dive deeper into symptomatology and don't just, you know, think about attacking something on a surface level, but looking at the real reasons for the causation of it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources.